This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Because for some people, they're saying, got that through. Glad that's over. And then other people are saying, man, that was a great time. And interestingly enough, more often than not, whether it was a good time or a bad time has to do with a bird. The mighty, meaty monster that we try to cook every year. Because everybody centers and focuses on that creature. We put it in the oven. We, we do all the things and we pray. I wonder, has anybody ever burned a turkey on Thanksgiving? Burned it while your family waits hungrily. I don't know. I've never done that. Not a turkey anyway. We won't get into any other stories. But you know, that would be disheartening. That would be difficult. But you know what I think is more difficult than that? Is if you spend a Thanksgiving night and day prepping that bird and seasoning it and brining it and and, and rubbing it and loving it and then you put it in the oven and while it bakes and roasts, you baste it, you pray over it, you commit it to God, you're doing the thing. You get the bird out It's golden brown and luscious. And you put little things on it to garnish it. And your family is sitting at the table with napkins in their necks. And they're holding their forks and they're ready. And you bring the the bird and you lay that beast on the table. And people pray and they dig in. And then an hour after after the meal, Uncle Floyd comes up and says, That was so dry. You know what? I honestly think some people would rather burn the stupid thing than to hear that. Because you pour so much of yourself into it. And you know what? Life can tend to be that way. That's the problem. We pour so much of ourselves into our lives. We pour so much of ourselves into our families. We pour so much of ourselves into our jobs, into our hobbies. And because the Western culture is a very performance-oriented culture, as we do that, we look for people to approve us, to admire us, which is what makes social media so popular. We post our pictures, we post our stuff, because we want the likes, we want the wow emojis, when it's a good wow. We want the heart emoji, because if you get the heart emoji, you're done, you're good. And then when life doesn't turn out the way we think it should after we've done all of that, it's devastating. After we've worked hard, after we've prayed hard, after we've striven and struggled, and things still turn out bad. And that's the whole premise of kind of what we're talking about in the last few weeks and this week. Those expectations those hopes and dreams, when they get dashed, when they fall, when things don't turn out the way we wanted or tried to make them turn out, we're broken and we're hurting and it's hard. And it seems like in that moment, all of life crumbles at our feet. We talked last week about the disciples who had poured their hopes and dreams into Jesus, their Messiah, And they believed he was the Messiah. They followed him. They walked with him. They sat at his feet and learned from him. 
They served him while he walked on the earth. Because they said, this is our Messiah, and he's going to come and chase the oppressor, the Romans, out. And when they looked up and saw their king and their Messiah hanging from a cross, everything that they left, everything that they hoped for, everything that they poured into him, crumbled at their feet. Failure, in their opinion, was hanging on the cross. We saw how they became disillusioned. But as we said last week, disillusion is the beginning of the journey to a better life because it helps fix our perspective. It helps us to understand what we should expect and how we should expect it. But even then, we strive, even as Christians, we attend worship. We serve in the Sunday school. We, we work with the children, with the students. We do senior adult events. We come and sing. We come and pray. We read our Bible every day. We pray two and three times a day. We strive to honor God and we strive to keep His Word. To fix our expectations on Him. And still problems come. Still, hopes are dashed, dreams are broken. God, I've been working hard. God, I pray every day. God, I'm a deacon. I teach Sunday school. What happened? See, the premise is this. The premise is we struggle daily with what is owed us. Lord, I'm a faithful member at West Concord. Lord, I, my daddy was a deacon. Lord... I'm trying to be good. I, I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm a good American. I'm a good citizen. We struggle with what is owed us when things fall apart. If we work hard and live honorably, then do, doesn't God owe us a good life? Why am I struggling? Why am I hurting? I'm trying to do these things. The atheist down the street, the skeptic down the road... She doesn't care about you, God, and her family's great. Her house is great. She's got it all. She's got her health. What in the world? And when bad stuff comes, the first thing we pray and tell God is this. I didn't deserve this. When sickness comes, I didn't deserve this. I've tried to be healthy. I run every day. I, I, I eat right every day. What in the world? I don't smoke. I don't drink. When financial crisis comes, Lord, I paid my bills. I tithed. I saved. I'm careful with how I spend my money. When our children struggle and, and fall, I've, I've been a good parent. We homeschooled them. We took them to Sunday school. We had them in church. We try to model Christian values to them. Lord, I don't deserve this. And that's our comment and that's our, that's our mantra. And don't, don't think that you haven't said that or heard that before. We all have. So this morning we're going to go to the book of Job, chapter 1. Job is considered and proven to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. The book of Job actually in writing and 
and, and in presentation predates the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, as God inspired Moses to write the first five books, they date around the 16th century, 15th century B.C. Job lived during the time of Abraham. Abraham lived 4,000 years ago. We're living in the second millennium A.D. Abraham and Job lived in the second millennium B.C. We know from internal and external evidence that Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. And it's no, it's no coincidence, I believe, because God is the author and inspirer of the Bible. It's no coincidence that the book of Job deals with shattered and broken expectations. Because that is the basic stuff that you and I live with every day. Job doesn't go off necessarily on a broad doctrinal and theological tangent. Job isn't teaching us necessarily about finances and family and all those things. Job is not dealing with Jewish history because Job was written before there was an Israel. Job is not having an argument about law and grace because Job was written before the Jews had a law or before there were Jews to begin with. Job being one of the earliest books written deals with basic assumptions that you and I deal with every day. Nothing has changed really in 4,000 years. Oh, we have better technologies. We have, we, have, we have wealthier societies. We have better food, better this, better that. We are supposedly smarter. But in reality, nothing much has changed as far as human nature if it has changed at all. We still struggle with expectations. We still tr struggle trying to figure out life. So in Job chapter 1, we see this man Job, or Yob in Hebrew, and the word literally means persecuted. Whether that was his actual name or as he was writing it was a pen name, but we believe Job is most likely the author of this book. There's no reason not to believe that except at the end when it speaks of Job's life and death. God raised up somebody, perhaps Abraham, to edit that. All of it is God's word. But as we open this book, we get an introduction to Job. We see his position in humanity. It says in chapter 1 of verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz. Uz, it is believed, was in northern Arabia, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. It goes on to say, and he, and, and, he, and he feared God and he shunned evil, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man, this man Job, was the greatest of all the people in the East. If Facebook were a thing, if Instagram were a thing 4,000 years ago, Job would be all over it. Job would be the guy that everybody looks at and says, I wish I was Job. Job would have been considered a phenomenally blessed and wealthy man in his day. Large families were a sign of prosperity in the Middle East. Not only that, but he had so many oxen and so many camels and, and all of these different 
hordes of animals, donkeys, and beasts of burden. In an agrarian society, you were a rich person if you had these things. He was wealthy beyond belief. Not only that, he, he was a godly man. He was a godly man. He feared the Lord. He served the Lord. He honored the Lord. Again, notice he says he feared God and he shunned evil. Now, while he wasn't perfect because no human is, he was blameless and upright. In other words, nobody could give gossip about Job because there was nothing really negative to say about the guy overall. Upright means in the Bible that you could stand up without having to be frightened or coward because of your own shame. As far as his life, he ticked all the boxes of what we consider prosperous and successful, even within the community of faith, because Job had a great and mighty faith. And Job wasn't following any religion necessarily because there wasn't really much religion to follow. There was no law of the Jews. The, Jews, the Jewish law was still quite a ways away yet. Back in Job's day, the head of the clan, the father, would have been the family priest. He was the spiritual leader in the clan. And as far as Job's position, he had great faith. His fortune was just incredible. Back in the day, if somebody had to have it, he had it. And he had a large and loving family. That family honored him. They spent time together as we're going to see. You know, we, many of us had family time this weekend. Maybe it was good. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know what y'all talk around, about around the table. I hope you didn't have any arguments, disagreements, or discussions. I read one article that says, well, don't be afraid to talk about politics or religion. I wanted to say, that author's nuts. But they had this family. Job had it all. He was everything. And, and if, it, if he were a member of the church, he'd be, he'd be a great leader and a great inspiration. That was Job's position. So when it comes to the standards of the world and religion, Job had it and did it all. And because he was a godly man, he was respected and appreciated. And it, is not a, it wasn't a, an act. It wasn't hypocrisy. He loved the Lord and feared God and tried to live as best he could to the glory of God. But, do you love that word? But, in spite of that, stuff happened. We're going to skip down to verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, who were they? There's been a lot of argument and contention on that. But this morning, if you were in Sunday school, you read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6 that at no time has God ever called any angel his son. Some Bible commentators and teachers say, well, this is the, these are the angels that are presenting. No, no, this is when the godly people on earth came to bring their offerings to God. Because no angel is ever called a son in Scripture. According to Hebrews, either that or Hebrews is wrong, and it's not. Now there was a city, or excuse me, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And guess who else showed up? Satan also came among them. See, the Bible tells us in the letters of Peter that Satan is like a roaming lion. 
wandering and roaring, seeking whom he may devour. Satan, the great accuser. Satan, the great adversary. I don't have to explain to you, I don't think, who Satan is. And one day when the, when the people of God, the sons of God, were bringing their collective offerings before the Lord, Satan happened to be there. Spiritually, physically, we, we don't know. However he chose to reveal himself, God didn't give us the details, and I don't like to speculate on details. Nonetheless, Satan was there. So as we see this, we see this great man of position. And Job is obviously among this godly group that's bringing their offerings and presenting them to the Lord. We see Job's prosecutor. Satan suddenly begins to prosecute Job because he is the adversary. And that's what Satan means. Accuser, adversary, enemy. So verse 7, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? What are you doing here, Satan? Where do you come from? So, just as Peter said later in the uh, Bible, Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Again, he's like a lion that's just roaming around looking for prey. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Job's pious, holy life was not lost on the Lord. God saw him. Because sometimes we're serving the Lord, we're trying to honor him, we're trying to do what he wants us to do, and yet sometimes it feels like God's not paying attention to us, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Sometimes we wonder, God, did you see what I did there? God, have you, have you listened to what I said there? God is watching. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 says, God is not quick to forget our labor of love and wherein we serve him and others. So Satan is looking for somebody to accuse, to prosecute and persecute. God said, how about Job? Look at Job. Job's great. Job is honoring me. Job is blessing me. So verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Boy, Satan's the accuser. Satan's cunning. He's crafty. And he's even challenging God. He said, Does, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? In other words, a wall of protection? And around his household and around all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the hand, in the land rather. But now God, listen, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So here's Satan, the accuser, the prosecutor of Job. God says, look at Job, he's great. Satan says, is he? Is he? Isn't he great because of all the things you've done for him? Isn't he great because you, you've surrounded him with protection, you've prospered him, you've blessed him? Isn't he serving you just because of that? Now, ask yourself this question. Was Job serving because of that? Doesn't say. I assume he was not. I assume he was simply serving God and he was blessed of God for serving him. Touch his stuff and he'll curse you to, his, to your face. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Now listen to this, Behold, all that he has 
is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. In other words, Satan, you take it, you do anything you want with what he has. All the wealth, all the prestige, you do anything you want. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is Job's adversary. And he had access to Job. Now let me tell you, in 4,000 years, the situation hasn't changed. Again, let me reference Peter. Satan still roams the earth like a roaming lion. Satan and his minions, we call them demons, fallen angels, are still alive and very active. And their job is to accuse and confuse. To get us to deny God, to deny God's word, to deny God's promises, to deny God's care. Nothing has changed in 4,000 years. Paul tells us in Corinthians that Satan is actually now the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air, he's called. And his job, his role, his mission is to accuse and confuse and destroy. And for God's purposes, he's given him access to you and I and to all the people on the earth. Why would he do that, pastor? Why would God do that? Well, that would be a series of six sermons in himself in itself, but let me just say this. God allows Satan to roam and to accuse and confuse because God ultimately leaves the choice to us whether we want to honor him, love him, trust him, and serve him. And in order to be able to make a choice, you have to have something to choose for and against. God has given us a free moral will because God wants to be chosen just like when you met your significant other, your spouse, you chose each other. You didn't want to have to pay someone to marry you. Yes, I paid Susan to marry me, but that's another story. No, not really. <laughs> we choose who we love because you want to be chosen. You want somebody to love you no matter, you know, they know you and they still love you and want to marry you, want to be with you. That's the beauty of love. That's the beauty. Human agency, I choose. God wants to be chosen. So God allowed Job's prosecutor to do his work. And we begin to see Job's pain. Down in verse 13. Now it was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. They got along. They gathered together. And, and back in the day, they would go from different house to house and gather at each person's house to enjoy time together. Much like we did this weekend through Thanksgiving. Much like we're going to do at Christmas. Maybe, maybe your family's going to get together. Maybe people are going to travel to come see you. This week we were blessed to have my sister and brother-in-law come up from Tampa and spend time with us. It was great. Maybe you're going to go to somebody's house, join another family. Who knows? Whatever you do, we all like to be together. We all like to do things together. And so this family was having a great time. It goes on to say in verse 13, and a messenger came to Job. This is, this, this is the thing we worry about oftentimes, especially if you're a parent. It says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And when the Sabaeans raided, these were people from Sheba, North Africa. 
And when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you bad news. We hate it. Bad news. A great deal of his wealth has been destroyed. But we're not done yet. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, while this first messenger was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. More of his wealth disappearing. We see Job's pain beginning to not only occur, but grow. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 17. While this one was speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans, these were early Babylonians, the Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So in those three messages, Jonah, Job, Job rather, excuse me, finds out, Job finds out that he is now broke. All of his wealth in animals and livestock and, and farming implements, all of it has been destroyed, his servants destroyed. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine what that day, what those moments were like for Job? In just a short time, in just moments, minutes, Job suffered a loss of his wealth. And the loss of his entire family, all ten of his children dead. And of course, in chapter 2, Satan's not done with him. Satan says, hey, yeah, you let me take his stuff and his family, but he still holds fast to his integrity. And Satan says, skin for skin in verse 4 of chapter 2. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. And he will surely curse you to his face. God said, you go ahead. He said, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence, chapter 2, verse 7 of the Lord, and struck Job with painful boils. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd, a, a broken piece of pottery, maybe the rubble or wreckage of his children's home. And he scraped himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. So Job not only lost all of his wealth, he not only lost his family, 
but he lost his health. You talk about tragedy. You talk about loss. If one of these things happened to us, we'd be broken, and rightly so. We'd be hurting, struggling. Especially as a believer, as we seek to walk with God and we seek to honor Him. The pain is almost magnified for a believer because our first thought is, but I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. Why would this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I've been faithful at the church. I tithe, I give. I teach Sunday school. I've tried to live right. I've tried to be right. And yet in the midst of all this, this still happens. I don't deserve this. Wouldn't that be us? If just one of those things happened. The pain. The anguish. And here's the kicker. Job didn't know why. Job didn't lose his wealth because of a foolish or corrupt business deal. Job didn't lose his health because he ate poorly or didn't exercise. He didn't have a disease that he knew about. You know, it's one thing when we suffer loss, we suffer ill health because of something we did or didn't do or because of poor lifestyle choices. We kind of know why we're, why we're struggling. It's like the guy who sits in his house praying for God to heal him while he smokes a pack of cigarettes and eats Pop-Tarts all day. We kind of understand maybe why the health is not quite right. But what's going on here is a spiritual debate between God and the devil. And there's Job not privy to it. Have you ever experienced something in your life that you just didn't know why? Just didn't understand it. All of a sudden, a health issue comes up. Cancer comes up. And you've tried to eat healthy. I can't tell you how many people I've met, talked to, and prayed with who would be, con be considered the pinnacles of good health. But suddenly, they go to the doctor and get a bad report. I've talked to and prayed with people who have tithed. They've given. They were generous. They were kind. They did good business. They were decent people. And still they lose everything. And then a guy who is a great dad. The Bible tells us in the book of Job that Job would go and when his sons and daughters were gathering, he would go and pray for them. He would pray for them. And he would offer offerings to God to seek to get forgiveness and alleviate anything that they might have done wrong. He was a godly, loving parent. And his children were murdered. And just like you, as you read the rest of the book of Job, why? Why? Can you hear Job screaming that? Why? Why? 
Oh, brother, it's a sin to ask God why. No, it's not. No, it's not. The whole book of Habakkuk is about asking God why. Nothing wrong with asking God why. He has all the answers. He is the answer. Who better to go to with why? The sin comes in when we begin to remonstrate and speak ill against God for what he's allowed or hasn't allowed to do as though we're instructing him and berating him for doing something wrong. When I try to instruct God or I hold God to my standard, yep, that's a problem. People ask me, Pastor, why is this happening? Why is this going on? And my heartbreaking answer is, I don't know. I don't know. And the passage, I guess, I fall back on more often than not is Genesis 18, 25. In that verse, it says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It may not seem right at the time. It may not seem good. I know when I was going through cancer treatment and struggling with cancer, I wore the book of Habakkuk out. Because like Habakkuk, I asked God, why? I knew because I hadn't made good health choices. Nothing wrong with asking God why. The problem is demanding God answer us the way we want him to answer us. Because Job, throughout the book, asked God why. Until God finally later explained some things to him. Loss of wealth, loss of family, loss of health, Job's pain. And I believe God allowed this book to be written as one of the first books of the Bible to get us perspective. And let's look at Job's perspective. So as we jump back up to chapter 1 and verse 20, after losing his wealth and his family, it says, Then Job rose tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and cursed God. No, it doesn't say that. Notice what it says. And this is not, this is, listen, this is not natural for us, which demonstrates Job being a spiritual man. Notice after all that he'd been through so far, just the first issues, losing his, his wealth and his family, it says, he fell to the ground and worshipped. That just doesn't seem natural. That's because it's not. He goes on in verse 22, it says, or verse 21, and he said, and look at his perspective, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Look at the last line. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now let's be honest. Faced with what Job was facing, would that come out of our mouths? He shaved his head. He tore his clothing. That was a sign of humility before God. Instead of shaking a petulant fist at God, he shaved his head and he humbled himself and fell down on his face, dropped to the ground, and he worshipped. 
And Job's perspective there teaches us the reality concerning himself. Job was basically saying this, I deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. We have a problem in our nation, and it's always been this way. We think, oh, it's something new. It's this generation of kids. You know, I'm getting sick and tired of people blaming everything on generations of kids. Oh, it's those millennials. It's those Gen Zers. Well, maybe so, but it's those parents who raised them. They didn't just pop on this earth. Everybody wants to, you know, look in the mirror from time to time. The big thing is entitlement. I read recently, it says, the less you feel entitled, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get and the happier your life will be. If you and I walk around thinking, I deserve this, I deserve that, here's the reality. You and I deserve nothing. We deserve nothing, nothing good, and nothing bad. You say, oh, that person, they were bad, they were wicked, she was evil, he was corrupt. They deserve what they got. Job wasn't bad, wicked, evil, or corrupt for the most part, but look what he got. Did Job deserve those things that happened to him? Can you say that? He don't deserve bad, nor do we deserve good. The reality is, we deserve nothing. We came to this world without anything, and guess what? We're going to leave without anything. They will either cremate us, put us in a box, Put us in the ground and urn, cast our ashes somewhere, but ain't none of this stuff coming with us. Aaron spoke of contentment. Contentment comes when we all just take the time and say, all of this that I have is a blessing and a gift. I deserve nothing. The only thing, if you want to say you want to just get technical, we do deserve hell. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But as far as this earth as we walk through it, we deserve nothing. So the less you feel entitled to, the more gratitude you will feel for whatever you get and the happier you will be. On contrary to that, the more you feel entitled to something, the less happy you will be. It just makes sense. Job basically came out with the perspective, I deserve nothing. I came into this world naked and I'm leaving with the world naked. I don't deserve a thing. Well, God didn't destroy Job's entire family. After God took his health and Job was sitting in pain and anguish, scraping and scratching his boils, writhing in discomfort, says in chapter 2, verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, you know, Job's wife has been given a lot of grief. Well, who'd want to be married to that woman? Curse God and die. What's wrong with you? Do you ever wonder if she wasn't trying to be as helpful to Job? Because probably at this moment, Job wanted to die. And she looked and saw the husband that she loved. She was struggling too. By the way, we forget that Job's wife also lost all of her wealth and her family. I think too much junk has been dumped on this poor woman. And she was probably looking at her husband just seeking relief for him. Job, just curse God and let God take you out of here. That wasn't, a, that wasn't a cold, cruel comment, I believe. And you can disagree with me all you want. But I honestly believe it was a, it was a sympathetic desire to see him get relief. 
Misguided, maybe. But don't beat up on this woman. Curse God and die. Just let God get, kill you. That way you can be relieved and go to be with him. Of course, that wasn't the right thing to do either. But she was desperate. She was broken. Understand this. When somebody's hurting their spouse, their friends, their family, they hurt with them. Don't forget that. Job, in his perspective, said, I deserve nothing. But in this instance, he answers his wife in verse 10 of chapter 2, and he says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not also accept adversity? In other words, God doesn't owe me anything. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So the reality, the perspective that Job had concerning God was simply he owes me nothing. And the reality is Job said, I don't deserve anything and God doesn't owe me anything. Again, Aaron spoke about contentment. The only way you and I can be content is when we come to the realization that I deserve nothing and God owes me nothing. And that's hard, I understand, because we are surrounded with advertising and surrounded with images. If you don't get this, you're no good. If you don't buy that, you're not special. You have to wear this certain clothing from this certain store and you deserve a break today. The world is your oyster. How many times have we heard those things? And the reality is we deserve nothing. And God owes us nothing. And when we understand that, when good does come, we celebrate it even more. And when ill comes, we bow our heads and worship before God. But the expectations roll in. And so as we walk away, Dan Denzel, pastor, writer, said this. He said, we must never assume that we know better than God. If we're not careful, we may even end up blaming God when we encounter difficult circumstances. Asking God why. Seeking answers from God. Praying and, God, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Is not a sin. Again, you read the rest of the book of Job this week. He does that all over the place. God finally does answer him. Habakkuk did say, why? And Habakkuk even said, I grabbed my seat, I sat down, and I waited for God to give me the answer. And God did. Now, God may not communicate like he did to Job or Habakkuk, but God is the ultimate answer. And if God has allowed you to go through things, endure things, lose things, even if you are striving to live for him, honor and please him, notice, first of all, that God never promised you riches or wealth. God never promised you and I ease or physical comforts. 
Next week, we're going to talk about things we can look to God for. Promises that God has made that we can hold God to his promises. But more often than not, our wants and desires don't line up with God's promises. But when we start to presume and blame God for our problems, that's where the problem comes in. That's why Job, it's, such, it's the oldest book in the Bible, I believe, for a reason. Because the human struggle is the most basic struggle. High expectations, misplaced expectations that ultimately don't get met. And Job was, a, Job was a man of position. Job had it all. But here's the thing about having it all. If you have it all and you got it all, you can lose it all. Because we're living in a fallen, broken world. Not only that, but God sometimes does work in our lives to test us, to try us for whatever purpose. My answer to that, will not the judge of all the earth do right at the end of the day? And like Job, we have a prosecutor. We have an adversary, the devil and his minions, who seeks to destroy us. He's after you. He's after your family. He's after this church. You and I must always be on guard against the demonic world. And Job did experience pain, horrendous pain. Everything that we put stock in, wealth, family, health, he lost it all. But his perspective was, as far as I'm concerned, I don't deserve anything good or bad. Naked came I in the world, naked am I, naked am I going out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And about God, God doesn't owe me anything. He is the Lord. He is the king. I'm not. We saw that in Sunday school this morning. So we finished with the reality this morning. So how much does God owe you if you, believe, if you are a believer in Jesus? Well, if you're a believer in Jesus, you realize that while the Lord owes you nothing, listen to this, he has given you everything. God owes us nothing. But he gave his son. He died on the cross for our sin. I don't deserve that. You don't either. God didn't owe that to me, but God did that because he loves us. And he took on flesh, and we're getting ready to celebrate his birth in Bethlehem. I didn't deserve it, but he came anyway because he loves me. He loves you. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the blame for all of our sins, past, present, future. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And now he lives to give salvation as a gift. Because you can't earn it. You can't be good enough to get it. He's giving it as a gift. We receive it by faith as a gift. And not only do we get a home in heaven, but in that salvation, we get a relationship with him. As we yield with him, we can have fellowship with the living God of the universe. Not only that, but we're promised an eternal home in a rich and glorious city. We're promised the spirit of God to come in us and, and listen to our prayers and to lead us and guide us. We are called sons and daughters of God, inheritors of the earth. He tells us that we will reign with him for all eternity. God owes us nothing, but wonderfully, he's given us everything. And we can celebrate that. And when we get that perspective, 
And I need it just like you do because I struggle. Life becomes sweet even in the sour times. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you trusted him today? And if you have, what's going on in your life? What struggles are you dealing with? I may or you may not know the answer of why, but I do know that the judge of all the earth will do right. God doesn't owe, you're not struggling and hurting because you deserve it, nor are you blessed and happy because you deserve it. God doesn't owe you and I a thing. That's what makes the gift of salvation all the sweeter. Let's pray, standing with our heads bowed and eyes closed. First and foremost, understand that while God owes you nothing and you deserve nothing, I don't deserve anything, God gave his son as a gift. And literally, he gave us everything. He gave us the life of his son. Jesus died on that cross. He was buried And when he rose again, he demonstrated he had victory over death and that all who would come to him by faith. We can't be saved by religious law or moral behavior because, again, we deserve nothing, can never, will deserve nothing, will not do it. We come to God to be saved. We come to him admitting and confessing our inadequacy, our sinfulness. Not demanding God to pay us because we're religious or good. But going to God instead, admitting our irreligious and bad, morally troubled self because we're all broken and fallen. And we come to God and accept his son, Jesus, by faith, trusting and relying upon him. Not just believing in him, but believing on him, trusting on him to take us to heaven. If you've never done that, do that this morning. Just tell God, I can't save myself. I deserve nothing. But God, thank you for your son, Jesus, dying for me. I am a sinner, but I'm trusting in Jesus to take me to heaven. I'm casting my faith and confidence in Jesus this morning. Would you trust him if you've never done that? If you do that, God will save you right here and right now. But if you're here and you do know Jesus and you're struggling, have struggled, maybe you will struggle, I don't know. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your life, dissatisfied with your lot. Maybe your expectations have been dashed. I think all of us here can say that to one extent or the other. Maybe you're going through things that I can't even imagine. I've gone through things maybe you can't imagine. But one thing I've tried to do, and I don't do it well often, is I have to get myself in the space where I have to say, God, I I deserve nothing from you. God, you owe me nothing. Thank you for the sweetness and the wonder of grace, unmerited favor. Thank you for the very clothes on my back. They may not be the best or the fanciest, but thank you that I have them. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my home. Thank you for the meal I had this morning. None of these things may be grand and glorious, but if God has given them, they're sweet and wonderful. And maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you're angry at God. That's okay. Just go to him and seek his face. 
Don't disrespect him by demanding he explain everything to you. He owes you no explanation. Owes me no explanation. Just lean on him. Lead toward him. And go through the suffering. And he will take you through it one way or the other. Because the judge of earth will ultimately do what is right. And you may not get an answer right now. And that may be because God is your answer. But like Job, we came into this world with nothing. We're going to leave with nothing. Everything is a blessing and a gift. So I'm calling you to join me as we, again, lay our lives on the altar for God as believers. And like Jesus, as he was praying in the garden, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood the night before his crucifixion. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go to the cross physically suffering agony and humiliation. But he ended that prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Let that be our prayer this morning. And Heavenly Father, that is our prayer today. And Father, I'll be honest with you, that that prayer frightens me at times. Knowing that you owe me nothing, knowing that I deserve nothing, Asking that not my will, but your will be done, Father, puts me in your hands. And I have to have faith. Father, I know that you love me and these who are gathered and those who are listening online because the cross of Calvary demonstrated that. You love us so much that you died for us. So, Father, your love for us should not be questioned. But, Father, sometimes we don't feel it. We don't see it. We get distracted by our own expectations and wants. Father, may we be like Job. May we be, be like him in that we understand the nature of reality and the nature of who you are. And Father, set our expectations fully and completely on you and what you've told us rather than what we think you should be. Father, I thank you for these who are here this morning, those watching. I pray that if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus as his or her Savior, that they would come and fall upon him by faith right now. Abandoning their own religion, abandoning their own efforts, abandoning their own everything, and cast their full faith and confidence in Christ and Christ alone as their Savior. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would encourage one another, help each other, and Lord, trust you and you alone. And as Aaron so eloquently shared with us this morning, to be content with our lot in life. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.